Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 44, A New Hope. David Sterling, the commander of El Detachment, seeking redemption for his men, made his way to the Siwa Oasis, the current headquarters of the British 8th Army. Siwa is located about 100 miles inland to the south of City Barani, just above the Great Sand Sea. Upon arriving there, Sterling was able to get the latest on the offensive. It had started out well enough, but then Rommel, instead of panicking, gathered his reserves and sent them around the desert side of the Allies' flank. And thus having gotten by the British main line, his men were able to penetrate 20 miles into Egypt, into Madalena. The worry for the British command now was, if those German forces turned to the coast and reached it, a major part of the 8th Army would be cut off. Even the idea of this panicked 8th Army Commander General Cunningham enough to consider pulling back his armor. Yet C&C Auchinleck firmly believed that Rommel was out of reserves, had used his reserves for this gambit, and now he was in a sticky spot, just as they were. On paper, and if looked at prudently, it seemed more harmful to keep the advance going, rather than pulling back to avoid being cut off, which is exactly what Rommel was hoping for. So, on November 24th, Auchinleck flew to 8th Army Headquarters and attempted to put Cunningham back on the offensive. But the CNC saw how shaken up Cunningham was by the events and the decision he wasn't willing to make. So, on the next day, the 25th, Auchinleck put his chief of staff, Ritchie, in charge of the 8th Army. Such is command during war. As for Sterling's problems, he believed he had also worked out a solution. Bumping into an old friend from the 22nd Scots Guards Brigade, David put his current predicament to Brigadier Marriott. He needed access to supplies, but given a free hand, he needed to be close to the front, but not too close. And lastly, he needed to be as far away from Cairo as possible. And Marriott delivered. He recommended contacting Brigadier Dennis Reed, who had just captured JLO with a flying squadron. JLO is about 300 miles to the west of the 8th Army's current headquarters, and about 100 miles south of Antilat, just on the western edge of the Great Sand Sea. Reed had made it known he would be operating from there for a few more weeks. Plus, he was an out-of-the-box thinker like Sterling, and should appreciate his objective. Sterling looked for Jalo on a map. It was 150 miles inland from the closest part of the coast, and not too far away from the current front. It was perfect. Making his way to Jalo, Sterling met up with Reed and put straight to him what he was looking for. Reed replied he would help out in any way he could. Then Mars, the god of war, gave David another gift. Soon after talking with Reed, a Major Don Steele, commander of A Squadron of the Long Range Desert Group, arrived to set up his forward base. With him was 30 of his men and about 15 300-weight trucks, either Chevrolets or Fords, especially adapted for the Desert Group. And in those trucks 
were every kind of supply needed to survive the desert. Just as with Reed, Sterling walked right up to Steele and informed him that L Detachment would arrive soon, and it was their job to take out as many enemy aircraft as possible, while parked and guarded in enemy camps. Would A Squadron ferry them back and forth during their missions? Steele listened to this sales pitch. The long-range desert group's job was to travel far behind enemy lines and gather intelligence and reconnaissance, but Steele could not see a reason why he couldn't help L Detachment while he was doing his own job. The answer was an enthusiastic yes. What helped Steele agree to Sterling's request, besides seeing the value of his mission, was that the LRDG wasn't like the other forces in the British Army. It had only been around for 16 months, and so was not steeped in tradition that could limit its functions. And the creation of the Long Range Desert Group is a fascinating story in itself and worthy of its own episode, which it will probably get sometime next month. L Detachment got its first chance to redeem itself soon after. Turns out that Auchinleck's intervention of not letting the Allied tanks fall back had called Rommel's Bluff. He was now in retreat to Gazala, some 45 miles west of Tobruk. And with that, Brigadier Reed, currently in charge of Jalo, told David that he had been ordered to make for the Anguilla-Antilat area. The idea was to push the Axis back to Benghazi, then hit them there, but already have forces to the south of Benghazi, and thus trap Rommel's men, which would end the war in North Africa. Or, at the very least, Reed's men would join in on hopefully pushing the German-led forces all the way back to Tripoli. As Reed was to meet up with Brigadier Marriott on December 22nd for the big attack on Benghazi, it would be of great help if what remained of El Detachment could take out Rommel's aircraft at the Agidabia field the night before. The Commonwealth forces were understandably concerned over the accuracy of the Luftwaffe and highly trained Italian Air Force. Sterling quickly agreed to this, but to help the assault even more, he also decided to visit Axis airfields even further to the west, around the 28th of December, when Benghazi was expected to fall, and all Axis forces were in full retreat. Over the next two weeks, David and his three remaining officers, Jacques Lewis, Bill Fraser, and Patty Main, worked out their plans, knowing the situation could turn on a sixpence and that L Detachment was very much under the gun. And because of those two reasons, the officers of L Detachment decided to go for so much more than David promised Reed. In short, Sterling and Patty, along with ten of their men, would head out with the Long Range Desert Group in two days and make for Surti, one of the largest airfields of the Axis, some 350 miles to the west. If they reached Surti, then they would have gone further than General Richard O'Connor during Operation Compass. Meanwhile, Jacques Lewis would wait for two days after they left, and then, with a few others, head for Anguilla, some 160 miles away. Anguilla is located where the desert dips at its lowest, in between Mersa Brega and Surti. Both of these groups would strike on the night of December 14th, 
This left Bill Frazier and the remaining men to, after a 10-day wait, make for Agadabia and bomb the planes Reed was concerned about on the 21st. If all went well, the British 8th Army would see nary an enemy plane during their attack. As planned, Sterling and Patty headed out on December 8th in trucks of rose and green that seemed weird at the moment, but blended in well with the ground once they were out in the desert. Over the next few days, the men fell into a routine. They covered up at night, dealing with the freezing weather as best they could. Around 11 a.m. each day, they started to strip off their sweaters and extra garments, and by early afternoon, were down to their shorts and short sleeve shirts. Around noon of each day, the trucks would stop. Lunch was prepared. Vehicles were repaired. There was always something. Mostly the tires would give out. While the navigator used his sextant to calculate their location. At night, they would stop and lay up. The navigator would again check their location. But this time, go by the stars. Before they turned in, the trucks were looked over again the men cleaned their weapons from the sand that had snuck in during the day. But the very last task done before the men turned in, because it could affect their tomorrow, was using the wireless to get the latest news. On one particular night, Rommel was believed to still be in Gazala, and the 8th Army was currently resting, readying itself for another big push. The long-range desert group normally didn't get any closer than 40 miles to an enemy position during the day, combat not being their objective. But as they closed in on Surti, and it was becoming dusk, it was decided to use the night to get L detachment to within three miles of the camp before they were dropped off. But just before the last of the sunlight disappeared, an Italian reconnaissance airplane, a Ghibli, flew over them. It circled twice and then headed away. Now the enemy was alerted to their presence and general location. The Italians would be on their guard. Sterling realized this just got a whole lot harder. Because complaining wouldn't solve anything, the trucks kept moving. When they were about 20 miles from their drop-off point, they turned off their lights. Around 9 p.m., they were about 4 miles from the coast road which meant about three miles from their destination. Just then, one of the trucks got stuck in some soft sand. Everyone was used to this by now and stopped to help. But when the engines were cut off, they could all hear voices being carried on the wind, and they were in Italian. The navigator figured out that their damn maps were damn useless as far as the exact details, but the damned coast road shouldn't getting that right have been a top priority. The men figured out that the Axis were on the alert and checking all vehicles coming and going to the airfield. Sterling knew he had to alter their plans. They couldn't put all their eggs in one basket. If they failed here, it would be the end of L detachment. Also, many Allied soldiers would be killed. However, if they tried to hit here and at the Tamman airfield 30 miles further to the west, then they increased their chances of success. One of the groups had to succeed. As their chances were better at Tamant, because no Allied force had been spotted near there, David decided to only keep one man with him, Sergeant Bro. The rest, 
under Paddy's lead, would head west. Besides, if Sterling and Bro were captured, it would only mean the loss of two men and might lead to Tammet relaxing their guard. Sterling decided that he and Bro would walk the last two miles, find a ridge, and watch the airfield tomorrow, and then plant their bombs tomorrow night. This would give the other team enough time to close in on Tammet and plan their own raid. When the two men jumped off the truck as it continued on its way, David was struck by the utter and instant quiet and isolation he experienced. It almost robbed one of their senses. Such was the desert's lack of stimuli at night. The two men started walking, but before they knew it, found themselves on the airfield. Their course or location, or both, must have been off. And now, before the two men, were rows of planes, but no guards and no fences. David was tempted to plant his Lewis bombs right there and then. But they knew that any fires or explosions created tonight would be seen at Tammet, which would ruin the other team's chances. So he decided to wait and moved off, readjusting their direction to find the ridge. But as they walked away, Sterling stumbled over something. That something turned out to be two Italian soldiers, covered with blankets, sleeping in a hollowed-out section of the ground. David righted himself, The men started screaming, other men started screaming, then shooting, wildly it seemed, which led other men to start screaming and shooting. But instead of shooting at Sterling and Bro, who were now running for the heights, the Italians were shooting towards the beach, obviously thinking that commandos were coming ashore in a preliminary engagement before the main attack. The two men found the ridge and listened to gunfire for the next half hour. Then everyone seemed to calm down. Next morning, Bro counted 30 planes, most of them being Italian Caproni bombers, while Sterling tried to keep track as the planes kept taking off and landing. Over the next few hours, Sterling allowed himself to take in the beauty and solitude of North Africa, but then eventually noticed that the planes were taking off, but none were coming back. Just before dark, They were all gone. The Italians must have been spooked by the reconnaissance plane spotting the six trucks and David's stumbling, literally, into the soldiers of the airfield. As for here, the show was over. There was nothing to do now but meet up at the rendezvous point and hope the other team had a better time of it. But Sterling learned another valuable lesson. Do not approach the target until you are ready to strike. By 10.30 that night, the two men placed their feet on the coast road, waiting for the ride to come along. All the while, their eyes were glued west to see if Patty's team had succeeded. But just as David was about to give up all hope, a flash came from the west, then a whole series of flashes. Seconds later, the rumbling of explosions could be heard. David was relieved. L Detachment would live to fight another day. Bro merely commented, It almost makes the army worthwhile. At exactly 12.45 a.m., Captain Holloman of the Long Range Desert Group showed up to gather the men. David decided to plant a few pressure bombs on the road, just in case the Italians were scared this way by the explosions at Tamant. Within minutes, an Italian truck came by, 
exploded, and ran off the road. Sterling had done what he could here. It was time to head the 80 miles into the desert and then wait at the meetup spot. Sterling's group arrived at the meeting point at 8.30 that morning, yet David found himself waiting anxiously for hours, hoping Patty's men had not been captured, trying to escape. But around 11.30 a.m., rose and green-colored trucks could be made out, approaching. The successful group was greeted by Sterling's men shooting their guns into the air. And successful the group was. Not only did they destroy 24 aircraft, but as Patty had stumbled upon an officer's mess, he flung the door open and sprayed the room with his Tommy gun. Within 15 minutes, all the men inside were dead, the bombs planted, and Patty and his men were walking away from the airfield. Then their first bomb went off. Patty decided it would be best to pick up the pace for a while. Eventually, they returned to walking, as it seemed. No one was coming after them. There wasn't anyone left. Jacques Lewis and his crew met up with David and Patty back in Jalo three days later. Like Sterling, Jacques found that Aguilas was only a ferrying point with few planes. So Lewis decided to improvise when he spied a roadhouse near the coast. Knowing that officers stopped at such places to get the latest intel or their orders, he decided to overtake it and grab whatever officers were there. The plan did not go as expected. One of the more industrious Italian guards spotted the vehicles they came in and shouted an alarm. A gunfight broke out and Lewis decided that, as their cover was blown, to kill everyone here and see what damage they could do. The damage they did was the following. Not only was everyone in the roadhouse taken out, but a transport plane as well, and a dozen desert vehicles became the new, albeit temporary, homes of many of his bombs. Their ride back to Jalo was unremarkable. As for Bill Fraser and his group, they had left for Agi Dabia on the morning David returned, and were back in Jalo four days after Jock's arrival and theirs was the greatest achievement of them all. Coming upon the airfield, the sentries were numerous and cautious. It took Fraser and his company an entire hour, moving a few feet at a time, to get past the airfield's perimeter. More than once, guards came within feet of them as they lay on the ground, trying not to breathe. Yet, once they were past the edge of the camp, it was relatively easy to approach the aircraft. There were 41 in all, mostly Italian CR-42s. The men dashed forward, placing their bombs, but when they got to the end, they found they had run out for the last two planes. Although not mentioned earlier, Patty had the same problem with the last aircraft, but he just jumped in and tore out the instrument panel. Fraser's men did not think to do this. But while still trying to decide how to destroy the last two planes, their first bombs went off. Chaos ensued. It was time to go. 37 planes had been trashed and gutted without a single casualty. Later, but not much so, the men found out that Rommel himself had been at Agidabia that night. Rommel was known to fly himself around on reconnaissance missions before and after a battle. Did they get his plane? El Detachment would never know.
Taking all this in, Sterling knew that L Detachment was safe for the moment. During a week in country, his men had destroyed 61 planes and at least 30 vehicles. And remember, this was the desert. Each piece of machinery was counted on. And all this with just 21 men. Celebrate the men did at Jalo, but there was still a war on, which meant they still had jobs to do. Sterling and Patty were again heading west the next morning, wanting another crack at Tamit and Surti. If the Axis parked more planes there, thinking the enemy would never strike here again, well, then they were in for a surprise. Meanwhile, Jacques would make for Nophilia, another airbase just to the east of Surti, and see what trouble he could cause there. This left Marble Arch Field, an Italian base on the tripoli Cyrenaica border, for Bill Fraser and his men. With the four Axis airfields about to receive a visit from L Detachment, the self-imposed goal this time was to take out 50 aircraft.